This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical conditions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. The magistrate called for order in the Salem, Massachusetts courthouse. The crowd quieted as 60-year-old Bridget Bishop was escorted inside by two men. It was June 2nd, 1692, and Mrs. Bishop faced the most heinous charge in all of Salem, witchcraft. As soon as Bishop entered the courtroom, 12-year-old Ann Putnam wailed and shrieked. She and four other girls claimed the older woman had bewitched them. Even now, her spirit tormented them, pinching and biting at their skin. While the magistrates questioned Mrs. Bishop, her cursed accusers tore at their hair and moaned. They pointed at the rafters and claimed that demons were there to support her. The townspeople then gasped in horror when Anne fell backwards, pushed by invisible forces they couldn't explain. A single look from Mrs. Bishop caused Anne to convulse uncontrollably. The court bailiff forced Mrs. Bishop to touch the girl's skin, believing it would break the spell. But the moment she laid a hand upon Anne's forehead, the girl opened her eyes, seemingly healed. Still, that didn't keep other witnesses from describing their demonic visions of Mrs. Bishop. Some claimed her specter choked them with ghostly hands. After a brief deliberation, the court returned with its verdict. Bridget Bishop was guilty of witchcraft. Eight days later, she was hanged before a cheering crowd. Visions of witches and demons such as those reported by Anne Putnam led to the executions of 19 other people. But it's unlikely anyone had conspired with the devil. Instead, the townsfolk of Salem may have been suffering from a physical condition. A fungal disease called ergot. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our second episode on ergotism and the Salem Witch Trials. Last week, we discussed the historical context behind the accusations. It's possible that the fear and panic in Salem was fueled by a psychological condition commonly known as mass hysteria. This week, we'll explore a different theory, that ergot, a poisonous fungus, caused the symptoms and terrifying hallucinations in the bewitched victims. It may have even altered the minds of magistrates and juries who sentenced the alleged witches to death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Salem witch trials ravaged the town of Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. It all began with nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris. She experienced strange biting sensations on her skin, followed by violent convulsions and hallucinations. Shortly after her condition began, these symptoms spread all over town. Elizabeth claimed it was the work of three witches living amongst them. This sparked a frenzy of accusations. The Puritans eventually accused over 200 of their neighbors and relatives of practicing witchcraft. Nineteen of those men and women were found guilty and hanged. For centuries, historians have disagreed over what caused this community to turn against each other. Many believed it was a psychological phenomenon known as a conversion disorder, or mass hysteria, when a community garners irrational beliefs that transform into dangerous delusions. Others believe the symptoms were complete fabrications, and that Elizabeth, Ann Putnam, and other Salem residents lied about being tormented by witches in order to gain attention. However, Dr. Linda Caparell of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, found these theories implausible. In most cases of mass conversion disorder, all patients suffer from the same compulsions or symptoms. As we saw last week, fevers were the common link among those who suffered from the dancing plague. But in Salem, the ailments varied. Some bewitched victims had seizures and convulsions, while others suffered from mental confusion and memory loss. Others claimed to have been choked or attacked by apparitions. There wasn't much consistency. Dr. Caporal also felt that the concept of mass psychogenic illness alone couldn't explain the vivid hallucinations the Salem accusers experienced together. And while there had been previous witch trials in New England during the 17th century, none of them devolved into the sort of mass hysteria that characterized the Salem witch trials. In most cases, a single individual was tried and sentenced. 
Never before had hundreds of people been accused at once. Dr. Caporal found it even harder to believe that the girls simply faked their afflictions. For one, eyewitness accounts stressed the severity of the girls' symptoms. A stunt like this would require dozens of girls, as young as nine years old, to coordinate and put on Oscar-winning performances. Their fake seizures and teary confessions had to be so believable they convinced the wisest minds of New England to sentence 19 innocent people to hang. Instead, Caporal wondered if the bewitchment had a physical cause, one that went undiscovered for nearly 300 years. In April of 1976, Caporal published a paper claiming the people of Salem were poisoned. And the culprit wasn't Satan. It was a more ancient enemy, the fungus Claviceps purpurea, more commonly known as ergot. Ergot is a parasitic fungus that grows on wild grasses as well as domesticated crops like wheat, barley, and rye. Humans have been aware of its unique properties dating back to 1100 BCE. In an Egyptian text from 550 BCE, a salve of ergot, honey, and oil was noted as a treatment for hair loss. And a Central Asian manuscript from 350 BCE described it as a noxious grass that causes pregnant women to miscarry and die in childbed. Ergot spores land on the flowers of plants like rye or wheat and infect the organism. Over time, it forms a hard, dark kernel called a sclerotium on its host. These mutations can grow up to the size of a penny. The fungus resembles a healthy piece of grain, which makes it hard to detect and remove. And most farmers before the 18th century believed ergot was just a part of the grain that had been darkened by the sun. When they gathered their crops each season, farmers would unknowingly harvest ergot as well. When the infected grain was ground to make flour, it included the toxic substance ergot produces, which can be lethal. Ergot produces organic compounds known as alkaloids, which bind to protein receptors in our cells. Many alkaloids can be beneficial, such as morphine, a painkiller derived from the poppy plant, or quinine, an anti-malarial drug which comes from the bark of the cinchona tree. When these alkaloids interact with a cell, they initiate a cellular response that can alter a cell's function or even destroy it. Ergot produces several different types of alkaloids that are extremely poisonous to humans and animals. A high dose can damage the circulatory and nervous systems in the human body. This results in ergot poisoning or ergotism. Dr. Caporal argued that the symptoms of ergotism were very similar to the afflictions experienced during the Salem witch trials. For example, Elizabeth Paris claimed invisible creatures bit and pinched her skin, but it's possible that ergopeptines were the real cause. Ergopeptines are just one type of ergot alkaloid that causes the blood vessels to contract and reduce blood flow. This is called vasoconstriction. The delicate nerve cells in our body need a constant flow of oxygen and nutrients to survive. 
When that supply is cut off, a signal is sent to the brain. For example, if you place a weight on your leg, it can restrict blood flow and cause a sensation we call pins and needles. It's an alarm that prompts you to remove the weight and restore blood flow to the limb. Elizabeth may have experienced a similar sensation, but the cause was chemical, and it was happening over her entire body. The vasoconstrictive effects of ergot have been understood for centuries. 12th century BCE texts from China described ergot as a medicinal herb useful in obstetrics. It prevented blood loss after women gave birth, but these properties weren't always beneficial. In severe cases of ergot poisoning, blood vessels constrict so much that circulation is cut off from a body part entirely. Tissue that doesn't receive a constant supply of oxygen and nutrients can die, causing a condition known as gangrene. In medieval Europe, gangrenous ergotism killed thousands. One of the earliest recorded outbreaks of ergotism struck the Aquitaine region of France in 944 CE. Rye wheat was the staple crop for the poor, and the humid climate from the year prior was perfect for ergot spores to thrive. Grain, along with the ergot, was then ground into flour and baked into bread. Within days of consuming the contaminated food, French peasants complained of symptoms including general weakness and nausea. They later noted a tingling or burning sensation in their extremities. It was this ailment that earned the disease its first name, holy fire. The infected grain was shipped to urban centers and the disease spread with it. Soon, thousands of people all over southern France reported the symptoms of holy fire and they continued to eat the poisoned bread, unknowingly dosing themselves with more toxic ergopeptines. In some cases, blood completely stopped flowing to the affected tissues. Fingers and toes were particularly vulnerable to this effect because they're supported by smaller blood vessels. The gastrointestinal system is also badly damaged. This is where ergopeptines are absorbed by the body, so they hold the highest concentrations. And patients with ergotism often couldn't eat or digest their food, which weakened them even more. Medieval physicians tried to cure the disease with herbal remedies, like elderberry flower tea. Herbalists believed elderberry flowers could reduce inflammation. It was primarily used to treat cold and flu symptoms, but was completely ineffective in treating ergotism. Without proper treatment, patients' abdomens swelled. Their intestines died from blood loss. Skin, fat, and muscle died and rotted in a process called necrosis. Bacteria feasted on the dead flesh and eventually spread to the rest of the body. Between 944 CE and 945 CE, Ergotism claimed 20,000 lives, about 50% of Aquitaine's population. Many survivors lost an arm or a leg. In the 10th century, Europeans believed holy fire and many other diseases were caused by miasma, or bad air, from wet, putrid swamps. 
mainly because malaria stemmed from these environments, although they had not yet realized that mosquitoes cause malaria. Others believe their ergotism symptoms were a punishment from the devil himself. Those afflicted must have been great sinners who needed to repent. Yet no one suspected ergotism was coming from the grain they worked tirelessly to harvest. The following year, 945 CE, was much drier. Ergot was unable to spread that season. Slowly, the infected flour was used up and replaced with a new, uncontaminated harvest. The disease vanished, but not for long. About 40 years later, the Holy Fire returned after another particularly humid summer. This time, it left almost 40,000 people dead, twice as many as before. Those who survived described the calamity in terrible detail. One witness wrote, Bodies wasted away. The skin clinging to bones was livid. The sick were tormented by atrocious pains. They had seizures. In the end, the flesh was eaten away and turned as black as coal, succumbing to gangrene and decay in such a way that the limbs smelled horribly and became detached from the body. These outbreaks became devastatingly common in Europe, especially in France and Germany, where they experienced temperate, humid summers. And still, no one had any idea what caused the holy fire, let alone how to treat it. Many turned to God for answers. Next up, a Christian saint becomes a hopeful cure for the holy fire. Listeners, here's a show sure to tug at your heartstrings. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the late 900s, ergot poisoning, or as the Europeans called it, the Holy Fire, had killed thousands of peasants and nobles alike. Those who survived had often lost their limbs. People were desperate for a cure. And thanks to one French nobleman, they found it 
in the relics of a dead Christian saint. In 1095 CE, Guérin of Valois was struck with a case of ergotism. He traveled to the Church of St. Anthony in modern-day Isère, France, where he prayed for God to heal him. And it worked. A few days later, his case of ergotism miraculously disappeared. It's possible that Guérin's hometown of Valois suffered from an ergot outbreak. Guérin likely only recovered because he traveled to a region with uncontaminated grain supplies. But he believed that the ancient relics of a Christian monk, St. Anthony of Egypt, were responsible for curing his holy fire. Inspired by his miraculous recovery, Guérin and his father founded the Hospital Brothers of St. Anthony. This hospital specialized in caring for those with ergotism. As a result, the disease became known as St. Anthony's Fire. The brothers of St. Anthony offered a quiet place to rest. They provided a healthy diet of meat and vegetables, which helped patients recover from mild cases of ergotism. The brothers also produced a curative wine known as Holy Vintage. On the Feast of Ascension, 40 days after Easter, this wine was strained over the bones of St. Anthony and given to patients. But while it may have offered comfort, the wine was never proven to be a cure. The only verified treatment was to amputate a patient's affected limb. This prevented bacterial infections and dead tissue from spreading to the rest of the body. But if gangrene set in on internal organs, such as the intestines, there was little the monks could do aside from keep the patient comfortable. It wasn't until the 17th century that physicians at the Academy of Sciences in Paris started to fully understand the link between St. Anthony's fire and ergot-infected grains. But even then, the knowledge was kept within academic circles. Meanwhile, cases appeared sporadically throughout France, Germany, and Switzerland. The effects of ergot weren't exclusive to the organs and extremities. Another version of St. Anthony's fire, known as convulsive ergotism, caused memory loss, mental confusion, and other neurological problems. It may have also caused the terrifying visions of witches and demons that plagued the people of Salem. Some strains of ergot secrete an alkaloid called lysergic acid. In convulsive ergotism, lysergic acid damages the central nervous system. Patients experienced convulsions, memory loss, and hallucinations. This compound may be why Anne Putnam saw Bridget Bishop as a terrifying apparition instead of a vulnerable old woman. In fact, Lysergic acid is so potent, it forms the basis of a well-known synthetic hallucinogen known as LSD. In 1938, 32-year-old Albert Hoffman was working at Sandoz Laboratories, a Swiss chemical company in Basel. He was searching for a new drug that would act as a respiratory stimulant. Researchers at Sandoz had been looking closely at ergot alkaloids, in part because of their vasoconstrictive properties. Controlled vasoconstriction can narrow blood vessels without cutting them off entirely, helping to regulate blood pressure. It's kind of like changing the nozzle on a garden hose. 
Hoffman's job was to investigate the uses of the ergot alkaloids and their derivatives. Hoffman tried 24 different compounds, but none had any beneficial effect on his lab animals, until he combined the lysergic acid with diethylamine, a colorless liquid with many commercial properties. When Hoffman gave this compound, which he called LSD-25, to his laboratory animals, he found they became overly excited. But it did nothing to affect their respiration or circulation, so the testing was discontinued. LSD-25 seemed like just another failure. For nearly five years, LSD-25 languished in a forgotten file. Hoffman continued researching lysergic acid without success, but he couldn't stop thinking about LSD-25 and its peculiar effect on the lab animal's behavior. So he decided to try it once more. One afternoon in 1943, Hoffman synthesized a new batch of LSD-25. In the middle of the day, he started to feel restless and dizzy, he decided to cut the day short and head home. But the strange sensation intensified over the next few hours. Hoffman fell into a dreamlike state and saw what he described as an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. When Hoffman returned to the lab a few days later, he tried to find the cause of his strange reaction. He carefully inhaled small amounts of other chemicals he'd been working with, but none of them reproduced the strange dreamlike feeling from before. By the end of the day, he'd ruled out everything except LSD-25. Hoffman knew ergot alkaloids could be poisonous, possibly deadly, and he'd carefully avoided all contamination. He wasn't sure how it got into his system, but it seemed LSD had caused his strange hallucinations without hurting him. So Hoffman decided to intentionally test the drug on himself a second time. At 4.20 p.m. on April 19, 1943, Hoffman secretly mixed 250 micrograms of LSD-25 with water and drank it. Within an hour, Hoffman became dizzy, anxious, and experienced visual distortions. It was far more severe than his first unintentional dose. His hallucinations worsened that evening. Fear consumed him as he worried the drug may permanently damage his brain. Hoffman asked his neighbor, Mrs. R, to bring him some milk. During this time, milk was thought to contain proteins that neutralized poisons in the body. Except... When Mrs. R arrived at his door, Hoffman didn't see his kindly neighbor. He saw a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask, which led him to believe a demon had invaded his body, mind, and soul. Hoffman believed he was dying and called for a physician. But when the doctor arrived, he could find nothing wrong with the young chemist. His blood pressure, respiration, and pulse were completely normal. The effects of the drug appeared to be entirely in his mind. There was nothing to do but wait for the LSD to wear off. Except it lasted two full days. 
But after that first night, the hallucinations were less extreme. In fact, Hoffman described the rest of his trip as benign, even pleasurable. More recent studies have found that lysergic acid diethylamide binds to serotonin receptors in the brain, which could explain Hoffman's satisfying experience. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that regulates a person's mood and sleep cycle. It's also an important part of the pleasure and reward systems. When lysergic acid diethylamide clings to these receptors, the brain confuses it for a rush of serotonin. This agonist activity of LSD on serotonin receptors in the brain is just one part of a complicated mechanism, which ultimately causes different sections of the brain to communicate in unusual ways. For instance, the visual cortex usually only receives input from the optical nerves. Under the influence of LSD, it receives information from numerous other portions of the brain, in a sense, the visual cortex sees things from your imagination as if they were real. Naturally occurring lysergic acid levels in the relevant ergot alkaloid are only 10% as potent as LSD. But if the people of Salem were consistently ingesting low doses through their contaminated grain, it might produce similar effects over time. This could be what caused hallucinations similar to Hoffman's, in which people appear twisted, evil, and satanic. Hallucinations that were accepted by the Salem court of Oyer and Terminer as factual evidence. Hoffman also found that a person's mindset and mood can influence LSD's effects on the brain. He believed his first intentional dose in 1943 was a terrifying experience because his fear and anxiety manifested itself in his visual cortex. His neighbor appeared to be a witch, and he believed he was possessed by demons. When he intentionally took the drug a second time, he was in a relaxed and controlled atmosphere where he described the experience as far more pleasant. In the last episode, we talked about other stressors on the Salem Puritans, things like the nearby war with the French and native allies. It's easy to see how this anxiety could have contributed to ergot-induced hallucinations. And keep in mind, they already believed the devil was to blame for any misfortunes. But it wasn't just the accusers who seemed to suffer from ergot poisoning. It may have also affected the minds of Salem's magistrates and jurors. LSD has also been found to enhance suggestibility. That means a person dosed with the drug is more likely to accept information presented to them without questioning it. A study published in the February 2015 issue of Psychopharmacology found that participants dosed with LSD had far more active imaginations than those dosed with a placebo. When a researcher read them a description of a hypothetical situation, subjects described it as seeming real and vivid, as if they were seeing it, not imagining it. In the years after the trials, many Salem residents admitted they hadn't been thinking clearly. It was like they knew something had affected their judgment. In 1696, a former judge in Salem named Samuel Sewell wrote, 
we confess that we ourselves were not capable of understanding nor able to withstand the mysterious delusion of the powers of darkness and prince of the air. Meaning he felt he wasn't acting of his own free will during the trials. Puritan minister John Hale also supported the trials when they were happening in 1692. But years later, he was critical of the use of the spectral evidence and suggested the executed witches were innocent. Hale's book on the trials was published posthumously in 1702 and read, Such was the darkness of the day, that we walked in the clouds and could not see our way. These examples may be a figure of speech or a metaphorical apology. But on the other hand, Sewell and Hale may have been referring to a sort of extended hallucinogenic trip. In the aftermath of the Salem witch trials, many claimed that Satan had manipulated them. They believed they were in an altered state of mind when they sentenced witches to death. And if the culprit wasn't the Prince of Darkness, it may have been Urgot. Unfortunately, there's no way to retroactively prove Urgot caused the Salem witch trials. But Dr. Caporal found more evidence beyond the list of symptoms. She claimed to know exactly where Salem's Urgot originated and why it might be the cause of the events that tore the colony apart. Next up, Dr. Caporal determines the origin of Salem's ergot infestation. Now back to the story. Dr. Linda Caporal believes that a toxic fungus known as ergot likely caused the Puritans of Salem to hunt for witches in 1692. Ergot alkaloids can cause both the physical and mental symptoms accusers testified about in court. It may have also impaired the reasoning of judges and jurors alike. But that isn't all the ergot hypothesis explains. It could also answer why the witch hysteria was so localized in Salem and how the trials ended so abruptly. In her research, Dr. Caporell found how the life cycle of ergot matched the timeline of the trials with surprising accuracy. Through this lens, the story of the witch trials actually began in the spring of 1691. That's the season when ergot kernels start to grow mushrooms and germinate. Then they release spores that can linger in the air for up to two months. This spring season is when the people of Salem traditionally grew their rye. Town records also indicate that the summer of 1691 was remarkably rainy and humid the perfect environment for ergot to take hold and spread over Salem's crops. The grain was harvested in August and stored for months until winter. Then it was ground into flour and baked into bread and other foods. In other words, if there was an ergot infection in the fields of Salem in 1691, it wouldn't become apparent until December of 1691 or January of 1692 when the contaminated grain was ready to eat. January of 1692 is when Elizabeth Paris's symptoms of bewitchment were first recorded. These afflictions then spread throughout Salem and grew more severe in the spring. 
Anne Putnam's troubles appear to begin around late February, and by June, it's possible that as many as 30 people were infected. Exactly what you'd expect as more and more people consume the contaminated grain. The victim's symptoms continued throughout the summer, but didn't spread outside of Salem. However, the summer of 1692 was notably dry, so that year's climate would have been inhospitable to ergot spores. The last new witchcraft case was brought to the courts in the fall of 1692. The court of Oyer and Terminer was then dissolved by Governor Phipps and replaced by the Superior Court of Judicature, which didn't reconvene until January of 1693. There were no new accusations over the winter of 1692, and it appeared that the symptoms of the accusers had vanished. That winter, they would have eaten the new harvest of grain, which couldn't have been contaminated with ergot, meaning the poison likely worked its way out of their systems and out of their minds. Not only does the ergot hypothesis explain the timeline of the trials, it may also explain the geographical patterns between the accused and their accusers. The majority of witchcraft accusers lived in the same section of Salem. Of the 32 adults who leveled accusations, 30 lived on the west side of town near the Putnam family farm. Twelve of the accused witches lived on the eastern side of town, as did 24 of the 29 people who stood up for them. To sum all that up, Dr. Caporal believes that the ergot infection actually began on the western side of town, at the Putnam family farm. Their homestead was one of the largest in Salem and consisted of swampy meadows which were primed for ergot. It would make sense that those on the west side of town would be most affected. Many likely bought food and supplies from the Putnam's farm, and we can safely conclude that six of the eight young girls who were allegedly victims of the witchcraft were directly exposed to Putnam grain. The first victims, Elizabeth and Abigail, both lived in the Paris household. Elizabeth's father, Samuel Paris, was the town minister and two-thirds of his salary was paid in food and other provisions. It's likely that at least some of this came from the Putnam farm. Anne Putnam and two other accusers lived on the Putnam farm and would have also eaten the contaminated grain. So there's a definite connection there. Another accuser, 17-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard, was Dr. William Griggs' niece and lived in his home. Like Samuel Paris, Dr. Griggs' clients also paid him in food or provisions. And Anne Putnam's mother frequently requested his services, so it's understandable that he could have taken contaminated grain home to share with his family. There were even some people who experienced symptoms after only spending one night at the Putnam residence. For instance, a man named Joseph Bailey became embroiled in the trials after he and his wife passed through Salem on their way to Boston. It's believed that they had dinner with the Putnams and that Bailey could have consumed ergot-infested bread. When the couple resumed their trip the following morning, Bailey felt a hard blow against his chest. He looked up in the distance and saw a strange woman watching him. When he mentioned her to his wife, 
She claimed she didn't see anyone for miles. The experience left Bailey shaken, but it didn't end with hallucinations. In the days following, he complained of crawling sensations on his skin, as if he was being pinched by invisible creatures. Though compelling, this evidence still is not enough to definitively state Ergot as the cause of the Salem witch trials, mainly because there's no mention of Ergot or blighted crops in the town's records. And possibly the most crucial piece of evidence that could have proven this theory has been lost to time. It's centered around the Paris family dog. Dr. Caporal believes the most overlooked moment of the trials is Mary Sibley's witch cake experiment. Sibley was the Paris family's neighbor. She claimed that this test could prove if the girls were under the spell of a witch. One of the primary ingredients of that witch cake was rye wheat. The result of this experiment was not recorded, but Dr. Caporal hypothesized that the test actually worked or at least appeared to. She speculates that the Paris family dog did have convulsions after being fed the witch cake, not because of malevolent magic, but because of ergot alkaloids in the rye. The people of Salem would have seen this as proof that Satan was among them. It also explained why no one questioned the girl's testimony over the next year. They could have lied about their symptoms and hallucinations, but everyone knew a dog couldn't. Dr. Caporal also notes that the magistrates only became involved after the witch cake experiment. So whatever the results were, they may have terrified the community. In Mary Sibley's attempt to help her neighbors by suggesting the witch cake, she just might have triggered the Salem witch trials. Without her interference, 1692, could have been just another year in Salem. The last suspected outbreak of ergotism in the Western world was in 1951. It struck the small town of Pont-Saint-Esprit in the south of France. More than 250 townspeople ingested ergot-contaminated bread. Many had convulsions, fevers, and nausea. Others suffered from vivid hallucinations. Over 50 residents were allegedly committed to a mental institution. An 11-year-old boy tried to strangle his mother. One man was badly injured when he reportedly jumped from a second-story window claiming he was an airplane. And at least five people lost their lives. Thankfully, farms now use a variety of methods to combat ergot infestations. Fungicides and crop rotations can also prevent an outbreak from spreading, but ergot still poses a threat to rural agrarian communities. India suffered a major outbreak in 1975. Ethiopia saw widespread cases as recently as 2001. So the research to eradicate ergot continues to this day. No matter what caused the Salem witch trials, the event had a lasting impact on both the Massachusetts colony and the future of the United States. According to some, 1692 marked the beginning of the end of religious rule in America. Before, Puritans dominated the colonial government and discriminated against religious minorities. 
After the Salem witch trials, this trend waned. The frenzied accusations and senseless executions were used by critics to illustrate the dangers of theocratic rule. William III, King of England, oversaw the implementation of policies and institutions in the Massachusetts Bay Colony that sought to remove power from the hands of the Puritans, who had governed with a heavy dose of religious intolerance. This fear of theocracy led to the secular government enshrined in the United States Constitution, the separation of church and state. To this day, the Salem witch trials remain a bit of a mystery. We may never know if it was sparked by ergotism, mass hysteria, or old-fashioned lies. But we do know it was fueled by paranoia and anxiety. The people of Salem wrongfully ruined the lives of hundreds of people, the real victims of this horrible event. All because people feared the devil and believed his consortium of witches would end their way of life. In a way, they were right. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Evan McGahee with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>